This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard. Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. It all started with the elevator. My husband, who is sighted, has been using his keys to push elevator buttons to avoid physical contact. Not to be outdone, I too pulled out my keys and pushed elevator buttons without looking. Although I'm blind, I was terrified of exposing myself and others to the coronavirus. After the experiment in elevator button pushing, I was able to reach every floor in our building, except the one I wanted to get to. In our COVID world, people who are blind or partially sighted and those who rely on senses other than sight to navigate are finding it increasingly difficult to get around. Today, we discuss navigating while blind during COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juwita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and keeping well during the pandemic and also keeping busy. If you'd like to keep up with some of the AMI-audio segments dealing with COVID-19, please visit our webpage at ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. I think I've mentioned on the program before that being visually impaired myself, I've had a range of concerns dealing with our new social distancing, physical distancing reality. I wondered about using the elevators, shopping for groceries, and keeping six, six feet apart. I wondered about accidentally brushing up against somebody in a crowded elevator, and what the implications for me and others would be now that we are being asked to avoid touching things like surfaces and bumping into people. My guest today is Dr. Nicholas Gudici, Chief Research Scientist at, uh, of Spatial Informatics at the Virtual Environmental and Multimodal Interaction Lab at the University of Maine. He joins us now to discuss his ongoing research as well as an article he wrote recently published in the Medium. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's so nice to have you. Hello, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. What got you thinking about some of the challenges faced by people who are blind or partially sighted during the pandemic, especially when it comes to navigation? Uh, well, so I'm congenitally blind. So as this uh, started having kind of quarantining and sheltering in place, I just started realizing, and I started, it's, you know, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, you know, what are the things that we can do to protect ourselves? How do we stay healthy? And, you know, the initial stuff that came out from the CDC in terms of guidelines and what it's turned out to be really important are these three, um, well, among other things, but three things of social distancing is really important, uh, wearing masks, being around people that are wearing masks, 
not touching your face uh, or tried to limit that. And, um, you know, the, the, these types of activities um, that, well, can be really important for safeguarding against contraction uh, coronavirus also have some real challenges for blind people. And a lot of them are around this idea of avoiding or limiting touch and physical contact. And as a blind person, uh, you know, when you don't see the world, you touch it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just kind of, kind of how a primary way of interacting with your environment, with people around you, with finding out, you know, it can be as simple as just trying to figure out, oh, where, where is my coffee mug? I know it's on the table somewhere. Or, you know, interacting with people and staying present. So I was kind of writing these things in just down to myself throughout the process. And I started putting them together and, and saying, hey, I bet a lot of other people are having these issues. And I was talking to some other blind friends and they were sharing some of the same things. So that was kind of the impetus of uh, writing this article. And so for those of us who may not be in the know, I remember taking an undergraduate class in psychology where they said that the dominant sense is vision. So when you compare the other senses, how does touch stack up? Is it an equivalent sense? Does it give us the same information as blind people that you would get by looking at something if you were sighted? Yeah, so I'm a professor and I could go on for a long time about this, so <laughs> please stop me. <laughs> the short answer is no. I mean, the, the, the majority, if you think of the brain as, you know, all these kind of processing units that, that take in information, we... We have the vast majority of, of neural real estate dedicated for, for visual processing. Um, but there's a lot of commonalities between the senses that people don't talk to think about. And I always say most of what sighted people consider visual information isn't really visual, it's spatial. So if you think of, you know, the room around you, you have walls, you have the floor, you have your chair in relation to the table. These things are spatial relations that can be, you know, I can reach out and feel the edge of my table and I'm feeling the exact same thing that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and so vision's really a good pipe. It's a good conduit of spatial information, but it doesn't, it doesn't have a monopoly on, on spatial information. And touch is probably the, the closest in terms of conveying space um, as vision. So there's a lot of, a lot of equivalence. There's a lot of overlap. Um, I'll be happens at a closer, you know, your, your arms are only, couple feet long, right? So mm -hmm. you can see for miles, you can see for light years uh, when you're looking at a star. And, you know, with my cane, I can get a real long cane and maybe feel out to two meters. So mm -hmm. there, there's difference in the field of view and in the depth of view. But in the information that you get, there's a lot of similarity. And same with, you know, what you hear and, and the like. So not being able to touch in, in, in a lot of ways. And one of the things I said in my article is it's kind of like asking my sighted friends to go around with uh, glasses on or you know, blindfold on and mm -hmm. say, okay, now, now that's your experience of the world. It really takes away a huge amount of uh, appreciation. And, and yes, it's not that we can't touch, but, but when touch has now become something that has made people become uncomfortable or nervous or afraid, it means that the way that I'm interacting and other blind folks are interacting with the world is a way that suddenly makes people fearful. Mm. But what would you say to someone that if you have to touch surfaces, what's the harm in doing that so long as you're constantly hand washing? Or maybe if you're blind or partially sighted, wear gloves. Why doesn't that work? Well, um, what, what I found out, and this is not based on, you know, science that I've done in the lab or whatever, but this is just 
from my experience and the people that I've talked to. Um, so if you wash your hands a lot, which is important, if you touch things, you can wash your hands. But when you wash your hands a lot, you, they become kind of desensitized. You get this feeling like if you've swum, been in the water for a long time mm-hmm. or take a bath or whatever, your hands get kind of prune-like. And when yeah. they get prune-like, they shrivel. It changes the receptor surface. So it changes the way that you're – how you're feeling. And it makes it very – it desensitizes the fingers. So, like, if you're a Braille reader, you can't read Braille if you've been in the water. Your fingers have become – they've changed their their shape. They've changed the receptor sensitivity. Um, so things just become unnatural. Same with gloves. You can put a glove on, but a glove is, is again, like wearing almost blurred glasses or having a sighted person in the fog. You can kind of tell stuff is there, but it's but it's it's harder. There's less acuity. There's less sensitivity, and it's much harder to actually feel things in a meaningful way. So it's it's one of those solutions that's easy. It sounds like something that would really work, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't. It makes it makes everything feel very unnatural and kind of un yeah I just find it unpleasant it's kind of disturbing somehow we'll come back to that point about things being a bit disturbing in a few minutes but one of the things that I started to worry about fairly early in the pandemic being blind myself Nick is how sighted guide of any kind was supposed to work if it was my husband who happens to be living with me so we're in the same household I didn't see a problem there but if I were in any other situation where I required sighted guide being in such close proximity to a stranger was making me very nervous do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a challenge, and it's one of these things where people often, you know, they they may not use sighted guide as a primary way of of getting around, or, or they might. But even someone that uses a cane or a dog, a lot of times, you'll get into a situation where you're in a store and uh, someone's helping you with something, and it's it's just easier to say, hey, I'll, I'll guide you over here, and you might normally gr- grab onto their elbow. And now that's you know now people are are really concerned about that so it causes not only is it just challenging because how do you deal with this you still need to do these same tasks you want to go out you would normally go sight a guide if it's not someone that's comfortable with that you know that leads to a big problem like i was going to go to uh, an event recently that was going to be something something that was going to be loud so i wasn't going to take my dog um, and the person i was with was okay with going sighted guide but uh, someone we were with wasn't, and that, you know that that's their choice. You have to not, mm-hmm. or I feel at least, I can't be upset with them for that. But it really makes a lot of things difficult. And then there's a lot of incidental contact, right? Like I'm sure you've had this experience where you're reaching in over to get get your change at a counter, and your hand might touch the person there by accident. Mm-hmm. And previously, you'd be like, oh, excuse me, you know, whatever, it's not a big deal. And now it suddenly is a big deal. Um, those types of incidental contacts coming up on someone not realizing you're within six feet. You know, so there's a lot of challenges. I don't have a, a good answer to them. I think a lot of it comes down to talking with someone. So I am a go sighted guide. We have on masks. Um, I've washed my hands, you know, whatever. But I, I, I think at the end of the day, there, there needs to be you know, a, a better communication of being able to explain what, what I'm doing, what they're doing, what needs are, but still figuring out a way to allow something like that to happen without over, I mean, kind of the point of this article is just saying, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Touch, touch isn't bad. And touch mm-hmm. is actually really amazing. How can we do it in a way that's safe? 
one of the things that you say in the article is this point about the demonization of touch and how you worry that it's going to end up being the one sense that gets put on the extinction list. How do we then reconcile the best public health advice that we're being all asked to follow uh, along with doing what you're seeing, which is recognizing that there's nothing inherently wrong with touch itself and, and there's nothing inherently stigmatizing about being in the world in a way that requires you to rely on your sense of touch? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, <laughs> my refrain for this whole thing is I don't know if I have, I, I don't have an immediate answer. I mean, I think that part of the answer certainly involves conversations like we're having and just kind of getting people to, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, we're scared, there's a problem, so let's do one thing and that's, we'll avoid touch. And the problem isn't touch, the problem is the virus, right? And touch is just a way that it can be contracted, but it it's not, doesn't mean that just because you're touching that that's a necessary, necessary, necessary mode of contraction. So I think getting people to understand touch isn't something to be villainized and it isn't something to be scared of, but you should do it prudently. Just like when you cross a street, you don't just go out willy nilly, like you make sure that there, that there are cars coming. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you, if you, you know, if you're going to go out and be, you're going to be touching public surfaces, which is going to happen for anyone. And certainly it's going to happen for a blind person because of, like you talked about the elevator, I come up to a street and I'm looking for the street button. I'm going to touch it. Um, you know, I'd just be sure to wash wash my hands when I get home, and and, and to you know be, to to take certain precautions, but also just to talk with people. I think a lot of it's education, and just saying this is not only the way that I communicate and the way that you know, a lot of people communicate, but that it's that it's fine as long as we're doing it in a way that's safe. Like if I'm going to rub my face, I probably shouldn't go and then touch your face. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> exactly. Um, but. If I do touch my face, that's fine. Or if I if, if if I have contact with you, that's fine. But you know, if we think that that if we don't know, you know, we don't live in the same house or whatever, then we take precautions. We wash our hands. Nick, what do you do at the Vimy Lab? Yeah, my my, my mother's asked me that for years. Um, <laughs> so Vimy is way easier than saying the full name of the lab. So please, <laughs> I will refer to it as that. Um, so it's a lab that I started uh, in 2008 when I came to uh, the University of Maine as a new professor, and it's grown now into a kind of a large uh, group of people. I think we have 20 students right now. And it's broadly, it's an education and research facility. Um, so we're at a university, so we're, we're, you know, we're obviously involved with education, but we're also dealing with research and my main focus is in, uh, I guess we could think broadly consider how we access information using different senses. So using mm -hmm. vision, using touch, using audio. We talked a little bit using language. We talked a little bit earlier uh, in our discussion about the similarity of space, how spatial information is common to all of these senses. And so that's kind of driven my interest. How are things, we have, we have all this area of the brain that's used for for processing visual information. People are used to using visual information. Most of our technology is visually based. But if there's this commonality, then how can we use other senses to support many of the same tasks as we would do normally visually? 
So on the basic research side, that's kind of just doing studies to look at. Well, if I learned a map, for example, I learned something through touch and I learned it through vision, how much similarity is there? Do we activate the same parts of the brain? And there's lots of kind of um, things that get into the kind of way that the, the brain processes different types of, of information. Um, the more exciting side of this is how that then relates to technology. So I'm particularly interested in how we navigate, how we get around in space, and how we access traditionally visual things like graphics. So, you know, we have screen readers. Blind people use screen readers, which allow us to access text, uh, any type of textual information that you might have electronically. So you're reading on your phone or your, your computer. But you get to a graphic, and the best you get is an alt tag that says something like graphic of two women and a dog. Or it might say graphic 34953, you know, which means <laughs> nothing, right? That doesn't tell us anything. So how can we use different types of technology to, to help with that? So the, the thing that I've been most excited about is something that we call a vibro audio interface or a vibro audio map. And it's just a complicated, complicated way of saying, um, you know, we have, we, mo most people are carrying smartphones now and they have all this power and they have all these senses and they have lots of different types of, um, you know, they have audio, they have visual, they have sound. And they have haptics, which is touch. When you actively feel something, it's called haptics. And people don't think of that because you have a smooth screen. So what can you feel on a smooth screen? But it turns out you can use the phone's vibration motor. So when it rings and you feel the vibration, you can use that in a more creative way. So imagine you have a picture of a, or even a simple bar graph on your screen with three bars that someone can see. You can make the phone vibrate when you move your finger around on the screen. So imagine you're feeling the screen like you would a piece of paper that has braille the raised dots on it. When you when your finger interacts with the, the position on the screen where the line is, you can make the phone vibrate. And even though the whole phone is vibrating, you're feeling it through one finger. So it feels like a line. And it turns out this works like gangbusters. You can get people to trace the line and use that information and couple it then with descriptions and, and sounds so you can build up a representation of what you would normally what a sighted person would see using this multimodal information mm -hmm. and so we've and done uh, a lot of work with this. right and by multimodal what you really mean is uh using all of your five senses that's what multimodal means. This is really fascinating research. What are some of the ways in which you hope to apply some of this research? Just listening to you talking, I'm thinking education is one way that uh, a lot of this information can, can come in very handy. Uh, same with navigation tools, uh, people trying to make their way indoors, but also outdoors. What are some of the, uh, what are some of the applications you see of your research? Yeah, so you hit the nail right on the head. So we have a couple of grants looking at this for STEM disciplines. So, you know, so much information now in textbooks is being provided in graphical form and especially in STEM disciplines. Um, so if someone's in a science class or a math class or what have you. And so, you know, this, this allows, instead of having to go and get a book sent away at really expensive trying to create it into an accessible form. This could, in theory, happen in real time as a, as a blind student in a classroom or at work, they could be getting the same visual information in their multi-sensory mode, as you described, uh, on their phone. So there we've been doing some work with maps. 
So how you could learn a map ahead of time or even during use and combining that with other types of you know, navigation systems that are out there that are giving you verbal directions. But imagine coming up to an intersection. So a lot of what um, I've been interested in is how you get people to build a cognitive map or a mental representation mm -hmm. of the space. And it really helps to be able to think of the intersection in the geometry that someone would see it because then you can understand, oh, it is like a four-way plus intersection or there's a fifth road that comes in. And if you could put your hand on the screen and actually feel the geometry of that intersection, that could be really helpful for you to build that cognitive map and figure out how you want it, you know, the, the safest way to navigate. Um, so there's lots of other types of navigation. You go to a new hotel, you need to figure out what I call the lot lobby problem. Your navigation system may get you there, it dumps you at the door, but you have no idea where the hell the desk is. You know, and it's there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of cues. There are big open spaces, and you know, I find myself standing at a at a marble, you know, planter because it feels like it could be the desk, and then no one shows up, and I realize I'm at a planter. So being able to feel the geometry of of these uh, of the lobby and having these things labeled as you move your finger around, so you you can get a verbal description. Um, you know, there's really infinite uh, uh, ways that you could imagine using this type of tool but i think for, for us because there is some challenge in how much information you can actually get on a small screen because tactile information you know to feel a line needs to be bigger than the line that you see so you have some challenges in how much information you can fit um so we're also looking at things like how do you pan and zoom non-visually these are things that sighted people do all the time you know with a on a map and you know pinching mm -hmm. and, and, and flicking it's really hard to do non-visually because if you flick something and it moves, you don't have any idea where it went. You don't have a reference. So how can we come up with new non-visual panning and zooming techniques that would help you to, to uh, interact with maps? Maps and kind of graphical content like figures and graphs, those are my main focus just because these are things that I think have big relevance to, to navigation, education, and vocation, which, I, which are big real challenges for a lot of blind folks and I think where this technology could have the biggest impact so that's that's where I'm focusing the most. I wish I'd known you 15 years earlier when I was an undergraduate trying to make my way through a intro to geography class and a statistics class at the same time so I would have been helpful to have some of these ideas as part of the milieu. One of the things that you're also working on in the VME lab is some research into semi-autonomous semi and autonomous vehicles and trying to build some trust uh, with end users and people feeling comfortable getting behind, uh, getting into one of these cars. Tell us a little more about the research that you're doing. Yeah, that's our newest research, and I'm really excited about it. So as someone that doesn't drive, uh, legally at least, uh, <laughs> I could tell you lots of stories from when I was a kid that were <laughs> dumb things, but no, I mean, not, 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 not driving, you know, is a huge challenge to independence, especially in places where there aren't great, you know, transportation networks. And so autonomous vehicles represent this huge benefit to people with low vision, visual impairment to older adults. So older adults, someone over 85 is four times more likely to be in an accident than a teenager. And, you know, I, I, I teenagers are awful drivers. I, can't tell you how much mischief I got into with my friends back then. So um, there's a lot of benefits with for these types of technology. But A, you know, there's lots of money going into them. But if you ask 10 people, oh, there's an autonomous vehicle outside the lab. Would you want to go into it? You know, over eight, per, you know, eight out of 10 at least are like, 
no way. I'm not getting into that thing. I don't trust it. I have no idea what it's doing. So that's a challenge. But the other challenge that relates to accessibility is that most of these things, and even in current semi-autonomous vehicles, have this big touchscreen that's totally not accessible, doesn't have any of the vibro stuff that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's impossible to use. I was in a friend's Tesla recently, and I couldn't even get my, my, my door to lock or my window to roll down. Um, so how can we make these, these devices that are more kind of um, – adaptive, more interactive, and make the the artificial intelligence, which is now going to be at the wheel, the new AI driver, be able to interact more with the passenger in a way that we can feel like they are being able to interpret what we need and we can interact with them, giving them the information that they need. You know, because it's not like interacting with Alexa when Alexa doesn't hear me, like I don't get to hear my song. Now we're actually doing this in life or death situations. So we have to be able to have AI that's accessible that people can you know, interact with in a way that they trust will work for them. Mm-hmm. And currently that's not the case for a lot of people that are gonna have a visual, visual impairments or fine motor problems or you know, cognitive challenges. And so we need to think of new ways and new interaction styles that will support connecting with these with these types of, of, of autonomous you know artificial agents um, you know in, in in life or death situations which driving is mm-hmm. well Nick we are just about out of time in about 30 seconds I noticed you had a survey on your website asking for some feedback on these semi-autonomous vehicles is that a survey still live can people still take part uh, I think the one that's there now may have just finished, but we are going to be putting another one up there. So if you um, uh, go to the website, and we're always looking for, for participants and, and, and people to give input. You know, most of this stuff is done oftentimes without input of end users, and I think that's so important. So we'd love for people to check and get involved if they're able. Nicholas Judici, thank you so much for being on the program. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Time's really flown by. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. That was Dr. Nicholas Judici, who is a, a the chief research scientist at the Vimy Lab at the University of Maine. He joined us today to talk about an article that he recently published in the Medium. We'll put a link up to that article on our show blog, as well as some of his ongoing research at the Vimy Lab. If you missed any of my conversation with Nicholas, please find our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Before we go, I'd like to say that it's really important not to demonize touch, especially for those of us who are visually impaired, who quite frankly see the world through the tips of our fingers. Again, our show blog is ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Dr. Nicholas Judici for being my guest on the program today. The Pulse is produced by uh, myself with technical production today by Sam Robinson, who's filling in for Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio, and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thank you so much for listening to the program. We'll be back again very soon. If you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, you can always find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Thanks a lot for listening, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Be safe, everyone. This was an AMI podcast. 
For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.